1: Hey everybody! Welcome to another Baseball America Prospects podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, joined today by uh, our peerless leader J.J. Cooper. J.J. did the Astros' top ten prospects for us this year, Always as he fun has to do. for many years. Always now. fun
2: to do. J.J.'s
1: uh, really done them since uh, back when they were starting the tank, and all the way through their World Series. I'm,
2: I wouldn't go that far back. I, I was going to say I haven't. I I got to enjoy the uh, writing up the uh, Astros as they've been good. I, I think I've been doing like four years now, so. You know, I didn't have to, to write them in the dark ages of when they had, I remember going, if you go back, there was a stretch there like in nine, 2009, 2010 where you're reading reports at the back of the Astros 30 and you're like, there's no way this guy's going to play in the big leagues. <laughs> a lot better than that now. Absolutely.
1: JJ, the Astros are in a pretty unique situation among big league clubs in the sense that they are highly successful at the major league level while also still having both top and pro, top end prospects and prospect depth as you were constructing the Astros top 10 this year you had two really good candidates at the top Kyle Tucker force Whitley both of whom have spent time in the top 10 overall of prospects mm-hmm. at various points here at BA Whitley missed a lot of time this year had that 50 game suspension to start through 26 innings had no bleak injury very stop and start year but he's still number one over uh, Tucker who really dominated the Pacific Coast League and made his MLB debut not a great MLB debut. Not a great debut, but did what he, you know, did well for himself in AAA. In your discussions with evaluators, both inside and outside the organization, what put Whitley over Tucker? I should say, kept Whitley over Tucker.
2: I think the key part for Whitley, he did not pitch very much during the regular season. That's undoubtedly true. But he also did go to the Arizona Fall League. And what he showed in the Arizona Fall League is is this is still arguably the best pitching prospect in baseball. There is no pitcher... In the minor leagues who has a better more varied repertoire a lot of pitchers, you can say he has a plus pitch or maybe he has a, a plus plus fastball and maybe he even has a 70 fastball and a 70 breaking ball but with Whitley you get a 70 fastball you get a 70 change up but then you also get three other plus pitches that's a I don't know if I ever, I've been here at Baseball America for 16 years now, and I cannot remember writing up a guy that we projected as having five-plus pitches. That doesn't really, again, I almost still am skeptical that it's going to end up that way because pitchers at the major league level don't pitch with five-plus pitches. But I was running it by scouts, you know, when I was writing it up, and I remember texting a scout and saying, am I crazy? to write up Whitley with five above average or better pitches and the response was, no, you're not crazy, you're light, but you're not crazy. <laughs> you're light. And then I ran that by someone else, and it's like, yeah, no, I, I think you have to say that this is a guy who could end up having, now again, we're projecting. He's flashing some of these right now, not as much as he's throwing it every pitch, but you could very well project this is a guy who's gonna have five plus pitches. That's hard to really wrap your head around, especially for a guy who, if he had two pitches with the caliber of his fastball and changeup, and had just some kind of get me over breaking ball, he'd be really good. And it's it's much much better than that. Um, I, I do think if you are looking around the minor leagues and you say find me a potential number one starter, uh, I'm going to answer Forrest Whitley. You compare that to Tucker and Tucker's a very solid, very good prospect, but I can, if you said, okay, find me an outfield prospect, I can't tell you that Kyle Tucker, I'm definitely saying is the best outfield prospect out there. He might be, but there are other guys in that discussion. I think Whitley is a step above that, and I do think also, again, what Tucker showed, and Whitley's gonna face this too, we'll talk about this with further on guys in this list, Hal Tucker came up last year, great year in the PCL, and he essentially had about a a two-and-a-half-week audition to be the Astros left fielder. The thing the Astros do not have now, they used to have time to have patience. You could give a guy 250 at-bats to show what he can do. That does not exist anymore. And so for a guy like Tucker, who very well could end up going into spring training and winning their left field job for next year, you're looking at a guy, though, who... He can't struggle at the big league level. If he does that for a couple of weeks, this is a team that's contending. They're not going to say, "Well, he just needs another month to figure it out."
1: What's really interesting about these two in particular? Every year, there's trade rumors. JT Realmuto is one of the big fish—no mm-hmm. pun intended—Marlins catcher and the undisputed top catcher in the game. Look, just to be frank, the Astros are not getting him without giving up one of these guys. One would think. For you, given that Whitley is obviously ahead of Tucker, and that Whitley is a potential number one starter, whereas Tucker, you know, there are other outfielders (laughs) you can find that may be better, even though he's great, would you take the stance of, we cannot trade Kyle Tucker, or do you feel like that's something that for a a player the caliber of J2 Real Muto, you pull the trigger and don't really think that hard about it?
2: I would would include him. Again, now... I could see a way that maybe the Astros could do without it, where it's like, okay, you know, you say you're going to get three guys from our top 10 and another guy, but you can't get either of those two. Again, I could say at least there's a possibility of that. Jordan Alvarez, very good hitting prospect as well. And there's no certainty that Kyle Tucker's going to be a better big league hitter than Jordan Alvarez. Again, they're both premium uh, position player prospects, you know, big time. You know, I'd say Alvarez has a little bit more power to him. He has a little more power than almost anybody. Uh, Tucker, you know, is is got a little bit more hit feel. You know, feel for hit. I think, but so I could see it being one of those, and then you're still going to be dipping into what's still very solid starting pitching uh, prospect depth. But no, I'm not including Whitley in a deal like that because again, I do think the other way to put it is is. If Whitley, if both of them end up being the guys that we think that they could be, not going to be, could be I'll emphasize, it is, if, if trying to find a guy like Forrest Whitley out on the market is almost impossible. Whereas finding a corner outfielder who can give you a very productive year offensively and be solid defensively, it's a lot easier to find out there on the market than it is, it's why teams always feel like they have to grow their own aces. Because, you know, again, I'll give the Astros credit. They haven't had to just grow their own aces. They've gone out and traded for Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole the last two years. If you can do that, that's great work. Um, but I do think I would definitely keep Whitley. But I would, I would be willing to trade Tucker in a deal to, to get such an upgrade at catcher.
1: You mentioned that starting pitching depth. And we knew about Corbin Martin and J.B. Bukowskis, two college pitchers mm-hmm. who were taken the first and second round last year. Josh James, look, his story's been told many, many times over, diagnosed with sleep apnea, got that fixed, all of a sudden, hey, I have more energy, I have more strength, I have more focus, I have more everything, and all of a sudden you have a guy who's pumping triple digits with flashing both a pretty good breaking ball and a pretty good changeup. When it came time to rank these guys, you ultimately did push James ahead of both Martin and Bukowskis. The other two have that longer track record, but James is the one with the present stuff in the big leagues. How hard of a decision was that, if at all?
2: Brutally hard. Um, I think at one point, I during the process of writing and reporting this, I think all three of those guys ranked fourth on this list at one point. I, I think, I, I think, I think, Corbin Martin may have ranked fourth on two separate occasions where I had him at fourth, I moved him off of fourth, I moved him back to fourth, and then I moved him off of fourth. That's why in the handbook, you know, we have the BA grades. I think when you look at the BA grades on this, what you're going to find is, is that there's going to be, uh, they may have different risk versus ceiling grades, but you average that out and you're going to find that these guys basically carry the same, the same grades because, James is the upside play. Uh, There are very few pitchers in baseball with, again, you saw saw 101 as a starter last year with two other pitches. Again, he could be pitching with three pluses when it's all said and done. But it's a lot shorter track record. There's a lot more of a kind of a question of consistency. He's a
1: big-bodied guy. We see big-bodied guys have trouble maintaining that delivery and sometimes. We saw, it,
2: we saw it in the playoffs. You know, he was working out of the pen. You saw him look great, and then you saw it kind of fall apart, where you compare that to, like, a Corbin Martin. And with Corbin Martin, I feel very comfortably that this guy is going to be very reliable. I, I, James has more upside. Martin is more of, okay, you, what you see is what you get, and it may be ready before too long. And then Bukoskis is somewhere in between on those two. So... They're all three really good pitching prospects. Again, like we talk about a proposed real muto deal or or whatever, it would be fascinating to see what I think if you threw out a trade and you said, okay, you're looking, you're you're talking trade with three different teams, and you said in this, you said, okay, you can have one of these three pitchers in the deal. If you were talking three teams, you know, equivalent trades. I don't think it's out of the to think that you may have one team come back and say, "Okay, we want Bucoskas." Another come back and say, "We want Martin." And a third come back and say, "We want James." They're that close together, and it really does a little bit depend on how much do you value likelihood of, uh, of floor versus ceiling. And again, part of that also depends on where you are, kind of in a in the life cycle of a of a team. You know, if you're a team that's four years away from contending. Well, how valuable is it having a likelihood of floor, you know, of being a solid mid-rotation starter versus a guy who could have a slight chance of being an ace? Probably the ace is a little more interesting, but if you're a team who's saying, we are trying to win now, then the likelihood of a guy who can plug in and say, we feel comfortable that he's going to be able to give us 15 good starts this year is probably more valuable. Again, it's a, it's a fascinating and uh, very difficult grouping to kind of separate out.
1: Bukowskis... Is- Especially is interesting, first rounder coming out of college. It was fastball slider. That was the deal. Starter relief questions. Had the car accident this year. Came back and did pitch well as a starter. I did get a good look at him in the fall league. Um, again, it's great stuff, but pretty clearly relieverish in that look. What for you has been the general feedback in the sense it's, again, it's, it's fastball slider. There's not a lot of fastball command, but just uh, overall. But
2: there is the cutter. That's the thing now is is I do believe that cutter has given him a little something different that it's given him a pitch the key thing is, is it's given him a pitch you write about the fastball command and the problem to me with Biccaskus the concern by him as a starter the biggest concern is is the slider not that he can't throw it in the zone but it's like it's a really it's a chase good, pitch it's a it's really good pitch you throw it in the zone enough to get people to chase it but you aren't sitting there going I can't locate my fastball I'm gonna go back to back sliders to get this 2-0 to 2-2. It's not that kind of pitch. What the cutter gives him now is a pitch that he showed, I'm down 2-0 in the count, my fastball, I'm really struggling to locate it. He has a pitch that he can throw in the zone and it's a good enough pitch, not that it's a strikeout pitch, but okay, and if they do offer at it, maybe it's some weak contact. So it has been helpful that way. You absolutely can find guys scouts who think that he's absolutely going to be a reliever there's no doubt about that you also find others who say it's 2018 it's going to be 2019 i you know i think this guy could be a starter now he's a starter in the current mold you're probably not expecting him to go out and give you eight but he could give you a good six he could give you a good five to six and especially in the regular season that you know and maybe the playoffs there's some value to that it's kind of there, there are some similarities in that you know, to what Lance McCullers uh, was doing for the Astros before he went down with TJ, which is you're not expecting to get 200 innings. You're never expecting to get 200 innings out of Lance McCullers. And part of that is it's a very breaking ball-heavy approach. J.B. Bukowskis is going to have a very breaking ball-heavy approach. But if you're saying this is going to give us a good 120 to 140 innings, and do it in a way that is those 140, though, he's more, he's more effective than that innings eater who gives you 180, well, maybe that does work nowadays. Or maybe he's a guy who starts for you some during the season, but he ends up working out the pen for you come postseason. You know, he's one of those guys who, yes, he's on that line. And we'll see where it goes from here.
1: From the outside looking in, it seems like these six guys at the top are pretty clearly the top six. And then there's a drop off. Is that what it was uh, on yes. the inside as well?
2: Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think there are guys further on in this who could end up being you know, very solid big leaguers as well, but that top six, when I say I, you know, four, five, six, I kind of reordered and reordered and reordered, there was no iteration. There was no one I ever talked to who said, no, 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 you need to have seven, eight, nine on this list ahead of four, five, six. Never heard that. So yeah, there is a pretty... I think a pretty clear demarcation line there.
1: One of the biggest names on the back of this list is Seth Beer. He was very, very prominent in college for the big offensive numbers he put up. He also was very, very prominent as a guy that evaluators just did not care for in any way, shape, or form. The Astros, as we know, are a more numbers-based organization. Uh, You see the strikeouts, you see the walks, and the Astros went with that and making Beer their first-round pick, which, based on all the feedback we were getting, was higher than almost anyone else had him.
2: That was a, well, we always expected, though. I think there were a lot of mock drafts where we had Seth Beer, Houston to Astros. To the Astros, because for, and we for also those said, reasons. Though, I will say, we said also we wouldn't have been stunned like Seth Beer maybe at the back of the first round, Boston Red Sox. There were a couple other situations where could have seen him going there or supplemental first.
1: Now he's made his pro debut. He got all the way up to high Class A mm-hmm. Buies Creek. On the one hand, the debut is what you want to see, uh, crushed, you know, hit over 300, 12 home runs. But you also saw at Bowie's Creek when he came up here the concern evaluators had. He was already thickening up. You know, I'd seen him play for Team USA two years ago. The Seth Beer I saw there two years ago and the Seth Beer I saw at Bowie's Creek is a lot thicker in that lower half and not in the good way.
2: Crazy thing is, he's a little faster, though, which is not saying much because <laughs> he was a... Uh...
1: He was a 20-runner at Team USA. I mean, like, I
2: know know there aren't a 10 on the 20 days counting scale, but it's one of those things where, like, okay, I'll I'll do an equivalent for a second. Like, with a fastball, you know, whether you're a 65-mile-an-hour fastball or a 78-mile-an-hour fastball, that's both a 20. Yeah. When it's runners, like, okay, you know, home to first, you get over that, you know, like, four... You know, you know, in Beer's case, you know, with him being a lefty, you're basically talking like over 4.6, you're like in that, that 20 range. Seth wasn't running 4.7s, you know, it, from home to first. He's a little faster now, but he's a 20 runner right now.
1: So given all that, it just, I'm more interested, I think, in what opposing evaluators had to say mm-hmm. about Seth Beer. What can Astros fans reasonably expect him to become?
2: The hope is, is you are talking about a really good DH. That's, that's, that was the hope before the draft rolled around. Like when we say like, where could Seth Beer go? When we were talking about mock drafts and all, it was really hard to project him with a National League team. Because I, and talking to evaluators, it is hard to find evaluators who are comfortable saying that he is going to play left field, or first base to a playable level I don't mean to an average level I don't mean to a fringe average level a playable level
1: you and you cannot put him on a major league field level
2: you can but you're not gonna to want to I mean that's and to, to give an example from the past still kicking around Dan Vogelbach the concern always with him was you could find guys who think he's gonna hit but especially when it was with the Cubs, is like you could not find scouts who said, no, 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 this guy can play a passable first base. You couldn't find it. And the concern you have, the Astros are not one to say, because of convention, we have to do this. But it is really hard to find over the last 25 years, hard to find examples of guys who broke into the big leagues as designated hitters. Because really, one of the big things is most teams like to use a DH nowadays as a spot to rotate in guys to give them essentially a break. Unless you had a David Ortiz, you know, you're you're not, there's rarely do teams just say, this guy's our DH and he's going to DH for 140 games a year. And even in David Ortiz's case, when David Ortiz came up, he was a first baseman. He had to hit at first base. And then they said, you know what? He's not very good defensively. He doesn't run all that well. Let's put him at DH. I, when I look at Seth Beer, again, this is going showing my age, but Jack Cuss could always hit. But Jack Cuss's problem getting at bats was is that he was a DH. He could not play any position well enough. Seth Beer has a chance to be a good enough bat that with a team that is willing to be a little unconventional, maybe he breaks in straight in as a DH. But I have trouble saying... You look at what the Astros like to do. Yuli Gurriel is at first base for them. That's an, inf- that's an infielder. That's a long-time second baseman, third baseman playing first base. It allows them, when they do shifts and all, he's not playing anchored on the back. It allows them to use him in a ways where they're taking advantage of his defensive ability. You can't do that with Seth Beer. I think that's, not, that's been a hurdle in hindsight with A.J. Reed playing first base for the uh, for the Astros, beyond the other hmm. fact that A.J. Reed is not hit when he's come up to the big league level, but that is that is a hurdle. And you, I, I the reports I have from evaluators are worse at first than he is in the outfield. But again, in the outfield, that it's hard nowadays to say that you really want to put someone out there who's a 30 defender at best in the outfield. It's it, it's a conundrum. But if Seth Beer hits to the level he can hit, it may not matter.
1: The Astros, we've mentioned, have a lot of depth. Mm -hmm. They are trying to win at the big league level. We're also at that time of year as we approach the winter meetings where the trade wheels are really starting to turn. We saw James Paxton get moved last week. We are in the midst of a whole new round of rumors uh, this week. A lot of teams, when their top 10 comes out in the Baseball America magazine issue, is not what it looks like when opening day rolls around next year. absolutely do you expect, again, the Astros have been connected to JT Real Muto. there's other trades that are always, you know, on the docket that aren't maybe public knowledge. How realistic is it, do you think, that all 10 of these guys will still be members of the Houston Astros organization on opening day 2019?
2: Highly unlikely. And I think it would actually be, I, I think that would mean that the offseason didn't go as planned. And I say that because... This is a system that still has impressive pitching depth. Now, position player-wise, it's kind of it's thinner than it's been. Although, again, having Kyle Tucker, Jordan Alvarez at the top, it's a nice start. And this is a team that traded away depth during last season at the deadline. Again, two years in a row, they've made significant moves. They got acquired Justin Verlander, in the offseason they acquired Garrett Cole, and then at the deadline, they went out and helped out their bullpen. Ryan Presley, things like that.
1: Roberto Osuna, and even going back previously at the Brian McCann trade. This is right. a very active, active front they've office. They've been an
2: active front office, but what they have been able to do, in some, to some extent, is that they've been able to trade what really is surplus talent for them. The Garrett Cole trade is one that's going to go down as we're going to shake our heads on that one for years on how they pulled that off, but. They did not trade a player in that trade, and we wrote this at the time. Who really would? It, Colin Moran's not playing third base for the Astros. Alex Bregman's much better than Colin Moran. You know, okay. You look at the 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 arms that they gave up, and again, I like some of the arms that they gave up. Joe Musgrove, Joe Musgrove is a
1: is a fine pitcher. You'd but rather you, have Garrett Cole. You give him up for Garrett Cole without questioning it. Yes,
2: right. You know, and then uh, Jason Martin. Jason Martin. I can't really, I could not map out a logical plan to Jason Martin getting 350 at-bats in Houston anytime soon. So you put all that together and they acquired an impact difference maker for them and they didn't give up anything that hurt them there. Um, But you look at it right now, and you say, okay, if they did go out and get a trade for a real Muto and they trade, you know, one of these, you know, one of their two outfield slash first base top, you know, ones, and one of these pitching prospects. Well, they're right now as we with again with free agency just getting started, and we don't know. Maybe they bring back a Charlie Morton. Maybe they bring back a Dallas Keuchel. But with it right now, having lost Morton, who's a free agent, Keuchel, who's a free agent, and Lance McCullers Jr., who is going to be out for 2019 because of Tommy John surgery. With all that, you still say right now they have enough starting pitchers at the big league level and in the triple A to handle it, where they could trade a guy away and they still probably have sufficient depth. And that doesn't count the next wave, which again, some of these guys are lesser prospects, but the Brandon Bielacks, the Peter Solomons, the Tyler Ivies, and that's not counting the fact that they traded guys like Patrick Sandoval and uh, Hector Perez and all during the season last year. The farm system's getting thinner for them, but at some point that has to happen because they keep trading away guys and they still have
1: guys. It's thinner, but for the right reasons. And that's, at the end of the day, what matters. Within that, we mentioned the top six. There was a clear delineation. How many candidates were there for these final four spots? Were these four, the back four, solidly, or how many other guys were in the mix?
2: I, I can't say that they're the back four solidly, and especially I would say that because Brian Abreu, who just added to the 40 man, you know, at the very back of this list, that's one where you could easily make an argument uh, that this list is being aggressive there. I mean, that's, that is a ceiling type. You know, it's not come all together. You see it at its, an, it, at its best, it's incredibly good. It's not close to being all put together. He went on the 40-man for a reason because the talent is such that you feel the need to protect a guy who's yet to pitch above low class A. That tells you something right there. But you could easily make an argument for some of the pitchers that I just talked about, like they're closer to the majors, they're more polished. Again, when you talk about pitchers in this system, we can list off pitchers for a good while, and that does not include they added Rogelio Armenteros to the 40-man roster. He's not in this top 10 good position players there are other guys ronnie dawson could fit at the back of this list there are other guys i I like abram toro is an interesting hitter there are other guys you could work in there but the position player depth is not nearly to me miles straw another guy who came up at the end of the year last year and i think again miles straw has a lot of ways that he could help the astros big league club in 2019 2020 2021 going forward so there, there is some further depth here, but it's more pitching depth than position player depth once you get out of that uh, top 10.
1: JJ, when you look at the Astros' big picture, just overall, how many more years do you expect them to stay atop the American League West, considering the major league talent they have and the talent they have in their system?
2: I mean, again, these windows, like, you look at it, and the thing that happens is... OK, you look at them right now and Justin Verlander's amazing. He's, you know, he's he's a Hall of Famer and he's pitching at a elite premium level Cy Young caliber level, uh, you know, Kate Upton will say Cy Young, <laughs> cal, you know, level. But, you know, he was, you know, but Cy Young caliber level as a 35, you know, plus year old. I mean, that's that's exceptional. But the, the reality is, is we're seeing it now with the Cubs. You have that window where your position players or your pitchers, in the case of the Cubs and the case of the Astros to an extent, your position players are cheap, they're inexpensive, and that gives you the flexibility to do everything. And then you hit a point where those position players are expensive and now they're also at the point right now where they're starting those pitchers, that core pitching group, if you map it out two years from now, they're not going to have a whole lot of those guys there. So I would say the next two years, they're still you know, the, the, the odds-on favorite in the AL West. Maybe they can stretch that to three. But to stretch it to three, what has to happen, and what has not happened so far for the Astros, they have produced pitching prospects who legitimately have value in trades and all that. And they have produced guys who have gone on to pitch elsewhere for a variety of success, different levels. Joe Musgrove, Vincent Velasquez. You know, there are others. Mike fulton Mike fulton who broke through this year. But, uh, who broke through years after he was (laughs) traded. That was a while ago that trade happened. But, uh, But what they've yet to do, besides Lance McCullers, and you know, we'll see with Josh James or, you know, I mean, Martin. D- Dallas
1: Keuchel counts as a homegrown Dallas success. Ca- yeah, but, but, the,
2: but he was at the start of all right. this. You know, what they haven't done is with this, in this time where they've been contending, they haven't basically had that guy who stepped in and is a 30-star a year guy. And maybe they're, you know, maybe it's not gonna be that they find a 30-star a year guy, but they find three guys who can give them 15 a year, whatever it is. But they're gonna need to have some of these guys do that, because. The pitching staff's getting older. And at some point, again, credit to the, uh, you know, to the uh, ownership, they're spending money too. But Carlos Correa, Alex Bregman are gonna cost you more to have in 2020, 2021, 2022, especially, than they are now. And, you know, George Springer is, you know, in our, you know, you have these guys, they're getting into the years where they really start making money. Well, when that happens, you have to figure out ways, okay, where are we spending less money? And logically, the way they maybe could do that is the pitching staff going forward. You know, when, you, when those guys are getting more expensive, is already on a deal, obviously. But, but there is, I mean, at some point, all these teams have windows. I still think, though, 2019, 2020, they're the team to beat in the ALS.
1: I think that's a very, very fair assessment. Well, JJ, thank you so much for... Uh, joining us on the podcast and uh, obviously all the great work with the Astros Top 10. You can check out more on the Astros uh, on the Baseball America website. We've also got the rest of the AL West rolling out this week on the web, as well as uh, in the magazine issue that should be uh, arriving soon. For J.J. Cooper, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening, everybody.